everybody. Uh, this is Dan Bush, and my partner Steve Jarman is on the line as well. My, are you there, Steve? I am. Good afternoon, everybody. Everybody, we are Dan Bush and Steve Jarman from the law firm of Land Mackerlane. We are criminal defense attorneys. Uh, and every other week or so, we come on the air and uh, give a little sense of what the criminal law is what's going on in the criminal law, not only in Chester County, but also in Pennsylvania. And sometimes uh, we touch on some other issues that are a little bit bigger than just things here in Chester County. And that's kind of what we've been doing in our last couple of shows. Today we're going to get back to some of the Chester County stuff and addressing some of the new areas of the law, uh, things that are going on in the criminal law in Pennsylvania. Um, to that end, Steve, tell me what you've been doing work-wise. We don't see each other very often because so much of our stuff is remote right now. Yeah, so at least in Chester County, it seems like things are close to being back to normal. Um, we, you know, we're going to court for, um, you know, motions, um, plea hearings, sentencing hearings, um, ARD hearings. I've done all of those in the last uh, two or three weeks. Um, the only thing that I haven't done in Chester County um, that I had done before was do a jury trial. But obviously, as you know, we don't do jury trials every day. Um, but those had not been scheduled, and it appears that we are – um, on the path to doing those. Um, in fact, there were, I think there were two jury trials scheduled, criminal jury trials scheduled a few over the last few weeks. And but for uh, um, plea negotiations happening moments before trial, those those trials would have went ahead. So jury juries um, jury members were called in, paneled, um, and ready to go. Um, so it seems in Chester County we're, we're very close to being back to normal as far as the, the court system is concerned. There's still precautions. There's you know, People are still wearing face masks, still doing what they can to social distance. They are uh, still doing temp checks. Um, but um, people are um, you know, able to have their day in court right now. So for those of us or for those members of the listening audience, they might be listening on Spotify or iTunes somewhere down the line. Steve and I practice in Chester County. Chester County is probably 20 minutes. It's a very large and very uh, diverse county, but it, it it touches areas of the five-county Philadelphia region. We're probably around 20 miles from Philadelphia, southeast of Philadelphia. I'm sorry, southwest of Philadelphia. And... Uh, the Philadelphia region generally is known in the area as having five counties that are adjacent to Philadelphia. And the counties themselves that, are, that, are, that make up that five-county area, Chester, Bucks, Montgomery, Delaware County, and obviously Philadelphia, have all handled this situation vastly differently when it comes to the court system. I just got off the phone with a Montgomery County attorney who was giving me some of the updates uh, of what is going on in their county, and theirs is vastly different from how Chester County is handling it, as is Delaware County. And Steve and I practice in pretty much 
all five of those counties. Um, but there are portions of Chester County where one side of the street is Chester County, the other is Montgomery County. There are portions of Chester County where one side is Chester County and the other side is Delaware County. So our areas of law really pract- uh, cross the county lines, but trying to negotiate what's going on with court in those various counties is extraordinarily difficult at this time. I was in Delaware County Court this morning. How they are handling things is vastly different than how we are handling things. As Steve was saying, Chester County Courts are pretty much wide open at this point. Yes, there are safety precautions that make entering the courthouses vastly different than they were back in February, but nonetheless, it's pretty much business as usual as far as things going forward in the court system. Uh, Delaware County is really, really just opening up, and I wouldn't even say that they've gotten to the point where they're opening up yet. They're loosening the strings a little bit. Um, Their numbers, their COVID numbers are Probably the highest in the state other than Allegheny County from what I from the most recent numbers that I've seen. Um, so they are extraordinarily cautious in their reopening plans. Uh, Montgomery County is not much different than than Delaware County from what I understand. They're reopening, but reopening very slowly. Our president judge here, President Judge Hall, has been uh, pretty aggressive on opening things up and to my knowledge, it's, there hasn't been any uh, any poor results so far. I mean, it's obviously a lot of bumps in the road, but as far as problems, major problems, I think things have kind of worked out worked out pretty well in Chester County so far. Uh, Steve, I wanted to throw something at you. You know, everybody knows we obviously talk and do a little bit of planning beforehand, and sometimes we talk about things and plan things out, and then sometimes we have things that we're going to talk about, which specifically we don't talk about before the show to see actually how each other reacts. So, Steve, I was looking at the most recent state police statistics, and we did this before, and I thought it was extremely interesting, so I wanted to throw it out there again. We're going to use a pre-COVID baseline for the week of February 22nd through February 28th. Okay, Okay. that'll be our comparison. The total calls for service, which is essentially any time a state police trooper, and this is across the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, any time a state police trooper gets involved with a case, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a it's a call from a member of the public. Sometimes it's a trooper himself who's out on the road and sees something going on and they initiate the this call for service or a supervisor says, trooper, I need you to go, one of his subordinate troopers, trooper, I need you to go out and check on this. That all of those things, including actual calls from the public, count as calls for service. Calls for service in that in that baseline week February 20th or 22nd through the 28th, 20,549. Calls for service this week, or I'm sorry, the most recent reported week, which is June 20th through June 26th. So there's a lag time of about five weeks here. 22,287. So a difference of about 10% maybe 
a 10% okay. increase. However, in mid, when COVID was really at its inception, those numbers for calls for service went from 20,000 up to like 36,000, 39,000, 37,000. My point is those calls for service are creeping back down to somewhat normal numbers. However, the total criminal offenses during that time are baseline week 2,317, so 2,317. Total criminal offenses in the most recent week, 309. So the amount of crimes that are actually occurring out there as far as the state police involvement, and I'm not saying that there's not crimes occurring. I guess what I'm saying is that the state police are classifying a charging, an offense is significant enough to charge somebody those numbers still are nowhere near where they were pre-COVID. Do you stand that? No, sorry, you said twenty. It was twenty-three hundred pre-COVID, and this la in one week, and then this last week, the numbers you looked at was down to three hundred nine. Correct. Wow. Yep. That's if my math is correct. That is thirteen percent. That's a reduction of eighty-seven percent down from the February, late February numbers. Uh, that said, DUI arrests, pre-COVID, they were, let's use that as 100%. Pre-COVID okay. numbers, 100%. Last week, the last week in June, they're down 4% total. So the number in the last week of June is 96% of what it was at the end of February for DUI arrests. Okay. So the point of that is, is that there aren't a whole lot of crimes that are being classified as serious enough to arrest. However, DUI arrests are almost dead even with what they were before COVID. So they're still making DUI arrests, and they're still obviously targeting people who are drinking and driving on the highways. I found that to be fascinating. I, I think that makes sense, though. I mean, the, with social distancing, I mean, there's just certain crimes that are just going to be reduced. If we're not, you know, if we're not, at least just take the DUI. If, if certain bars are, are closed or are at, you know, reduced capacity, you're not going to have you know, a lot of interactions between people. So maybe you have less like, you know, bar fights or a, a fight in the bar just because people aren't there to, to do the fights. Um, people are, um, you know, staying away from each other. So there, there's, there's going to be less interactions to have assaults against one another. Um, but, you know, people are still driving to and from to work mainly, you know, as businesses open up, people are going back to work. Um, people are still, um, you know, people are still gathering somewhat, but they're doing social distance gatherings where, you know, maybe people meet in the backyard for a happy hour or something like that. So people, you know, are still drinking and, you know, likely driving back to their houses or homes, um, after these events and, and still getting pulled over. Um, so I think the, the social effect, the social distance is really having the, the effect on the, the other crimes, uh, being reduced. 
and and I and I think also, um, you know, our police. I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. Our police getting those uh, calls and then you know deciding that you know for safety their safety purposes, uh, you know, or to the the county's per, uh, safety purposes. Maybe it's not best to take this person into custody. Maybe I give oh, this absolutely. person a warning or something like that. Absolutely. The numbers for the prison are still down to an all-time low. Uh, the fact is they just don't want to bring new people into a pretty uh, contained environment, which the prisons have become. You, the prisons are taking massive steps because they're essentially a Petri dish once people get in there. And if you bring something in there, it's going to spread like wildfire. So they're absolutely uh, making a determination, the police that is, making a determination that uh, we're only going to lock up the most significant offenses. And those significant offenses might be DUIs. Uh, they might not be. But um, there are certainly other, obviously, more um, victim-oriented crimes that they have to arrest people on. Uh, but. It goes back to the point that I, I guess, started that last sentence with, and that is that <clears throat> that is that the prison numbers are down to all-time lows, and it's not by design. It's because they don't want to bring people into an environment that they've figured out a way to already control uh, and keep as contained as possible. So. I thought it was extremely interesting. I really did. The calls for service I thought was interesting as well, and that is that if you're going by a number of like 20,000 pre-COVID and we're just at about 22,000 now, numbers when COVID was just hitting in like late March, early April, those numbers were off the charts. They were 36,000, 37,000. And what that told you is that people were staying home and there were a lot of domestic situations and a lot of, uh, while arrests were down and the street crimes weren't happening, there were a whole lot of other calls for service out there that probably initiated with just things that were going on in the home. People that weren't used to spending time with each other, people that were now looking at each other 24 hours a day. And unfortunately, I don't, I don't mean to laugh. I shouldn't laugh at that because some of those things are extraordinarily serious and, and have some really damaging effects on the individuals involved. But nonetheless, those numbers are pretty interesting. One more thing I want to throw at you is the number of traffic citations that were issued. There's a, I have in front of me a comparison from 2019 to 2020 per individual month. So in April of 2019, statewide, there were 49, basically 49,000 citations written. That's April 2019. April 2020, there were 6,000, 6,600 citations written. That's a drop of like 43,000 citations. In May of 2019, there were 72,000. May of 2020, 15,000. Wow. June of 2019, 43,000. June of 2020, 22,000. So they're starting, the number of citations is starting to creep back up. But obviously in April and May, people just weren't driving. Work was closed. As work opens up, people have to start driving again. 
and now people are out on the roads and the police are out there as well. Interesting stuff, huh? Yeah, I think I think all of that is is fascinating. Um, you know, I, I I'm I'm interested to see what the numbers are going to be. You know, for you know August. I mean, obviously, you know, people are still. I mean, this is the vacation season now, so there's a lot of traffic out there now. People going on vacation, so people not just going to work, but you know, people have you know planned for weeks down at the shore or something like that for their their vacation that they may have planned you know a year in advance. Um, so I think you're just going to see. I think that's going to continue. I think the trend on traffic stops is going to continue continue to go up at least through the summer. Um, you know what happens. You know, come September, October, you know, as, um, you know, more, I think more people are going to be home then as well, because, you know, there's a lot of school districts in the area that are going to go virtual for the beginning of the school year. So what what does that do? What kind of impact is that going to have on people driving around if you have to stay home with your, your child and, and help them get their education? Yeah, yeah. All right, so that's the current state of affairs where we are. Let's let's shift a little bit to a couple of the new things that have occurred since last we spoke in the criminal law arena. In Pennsylvania, two big changes that in that have occurred in the last two months, two, two or three months or so. First, our preliminary hearing. Steve, why don't you tell us tell us like what exactly how a preliminary hearing fits into the grand scheme of things as you as a criminal law practitioner see it. Yeah, so outside of Philadelphia, if you're charged with a misdemeanor or a felony offense, before your case can go to trial, before you're standing in a room with a jury trying to determine your fate, you're entitled to a preliminary hearing where in the area where, you're, where you were arrested for whatever crime, um, there's going to be a local magistrate in that area. And evidence has to be presented to that local magistrate to determine whether or not there's probable cause for the case to even move forward. It's kind of like a check uh, on the on the, uh, the prosecution. You know, they don't want to just arrest people and then you know, a year later you're going to trial and there's no evidence whatsoever against you. So this is this has always been designed to be a check. We need to, there, there needs to be some evidence that a crime was committed and that you likely were the person that, that did the crime. Uh, if a judge feels there's enough evidence presented at that time, the case moves forward to the trial level, the court of common pleas. So it's, so, it's like a uh, mini trial, right? Mini trial, mini trial. Um, I mean, there's testimony. People for the for most of my career, uh, and I'm assuming your career, um, there's people who witnessed the event would need to testify in some way to what happened. So if there's an assault, the person who was assaulted would normally have to appear at that hearing and speak and say, this is what happened. And then as attorneys, we would get to cross-examine that person, ask them questions. And it's a very, you know, for as a criminal defense attorney, it's very valuable to hear what, how strong the Commonwealth's case is. And the best way to do that is to be able to question their star witness. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, a few years back, um, you know, one of the lower courts, uh, so we have the trial courts, and then we have appellate courts, and then the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania. But one of the lower courts said that you don't have to, you can, your whole, a, a prosecutor can present hearsay at the preliminary hearing, and that could be the only evidence. So instead of the person who was the victim of the attack testifying, this is what happened, 
a police officer could literally get on the witness stand and say, this is what, uh, you know, Jane Doe told me. Jane Doe told me that this occurred and this person did it. And based on that, the judge would have to hold the case over for trial. In Pennsylvania, as much as the preliminary hearing is a first step proceeding and the burden of proof for the Commonwealth is extremely, extremely low compared to beyond a reasonable doubt, which is up at the next level, the rules of evidence still aren't relaxed. The rules of evidence apply just like they would would with a trial. Now, some some judges, uh, magisterial district justices might Eh, you know what, it's okay for this level of hearing. But for the most part, the rules are the same as they would be at a common pleas court trial. Then came Commonwealth versus Ricker, right? Ricker was yep. the one you're talking about. I think it was a 2011, no, 2013 case, something like that. And the Commonwealth basically said they interpreted Ricker as saying, Everything that you were saying that you were you were going to have to we would have to put on that person in the fight the victim in the fight we don't have to. Ricker they interpreted Ricker to say no we can put on a police officer and he can say I talked to Joe Jones and he was the victim in that fight and Joe Jones told me this this and this and boom their case was pretty much made out right and that was it and you know you can imagine the frustration as the attorney and more importantly the client like wait a minute i'm i'm going to trial like my case got held over uh, we don't even know if this this you know this witness is still is still around are they going to show up and it was just very unfair i mean if just if the average person hears that a case is presented against you with no witnesses no matter what phase it is most people are going to consider that unfair so it was awful it was, it was awful, awful. It made That's, preliminary hearings basically useless. Useless. That's right. That's the word. We, we looked at it as useless from that point forward, where it's like, look, we can have a hearing, but the only thing is I'm going to hear the officer repeat what's in his criminal complaint. I, I'm not going to be able to uh, assess his body language. And, you know, before that, it was a good tool for us because we could go in and, you know, really properly assess our case. We could tell our client, hey, this person sounds really credible. I, I understand what you're saying. I'm not doubting your story. but this person seems really, really credible, and they didn't break under my cross-examination. So that's a factor we have to consider when, if we're going to go to trial, if we're going to accept the plea deal, et cetera. So it made it useless until a few weeks later when actually I remember where I was sitting. This was a good event. You know, I'm at my computer in my office, and I get an email from you basically <laughs> saying preliminary hearings now have value again. So. <laughs> yeah, it was so, a good day for the criminal defense bar. Uh, but the com- Commonwealth versus McClellan came along, which is a, a Supreme Court, a very recent Supreme Court. I think it was Ju- July 21st. And yep. it said, hey, you know what? You guys have been interpreting the law incorrectly. And hearsay is allowed for certain certain crimes, but a ca- uh, the Commonwealth case at a preliminary hearing cannot totally be based on preliminary or on hearsay. I'm sorry. So, in other words, a police officer can't get on the stand and say, that victim in the fight, he told me this, 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 and this. Uh, that is not permitted because that is basing an entire case on nothing but hearsay. And from a criminal law, criminal defense attorney's standpoint, 
if a police officer gets on the stand and says that, there's no reason to cross-examine him because he, he doesn't know what the person said or he wasn't there, so there's no basis, there's no basis to go forward or no reason to go forward with a preliminary hearing. Now there is. Uh, and the law has essentially swung back. And it's the interesting thing with McClellan is McClellan didn't say we're changing the law now. It said you guys have been interpreting the law for the last seven years incorrectly. Yeah. That there was a case way back when called Commonwealth versus Verbonitz, and Verbonitz was a Supreme Court uh, a Supreme Court ruling. And then Ricker came along in 2013 or so and really changed Verbonitz. And number one, a Superior Court opinion cannot trump a Supreme Court opinion. But number two, McClellan came in and said, no, Ricker, you've been doing it wrong. You were wrong back then. And you're wrong now, so no longer are we going to follow what you said. Verbonitz is should have been the law the entire time. Yeah. So good day for us. Uh, the point you made about the Commonwealth, about putting on witnesses, sometimes, I mean, we're both ex-prosecutors. Sometimes it is good to put their witnesses on for them. It shows your client, and this is from a, like a strategy perspective. For the most part, most DAs go, no, 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 no. I don't want to. I don't want to put on uh, my witness and show you everything. But sometimes, it shows the defendant, our client, exactly what you said. Hey, they got a strong case. You heard how good that person testified, and more often than not, if their case is legitimate, it forces your client to reassess. His his idea that hey, you know what we should go go and fight 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 and go to trial on this because now you just saw that main witness and he testified and he was really good it makes him go uh, all right all right do I really want to go forward and risk everything at trial yeah I mean absolutely I mean we're the we're the first barrier to or the first we're the first judge of, of our client's case. Like, so when we look at something like that, if, if we never had an opportunity to interview or question um, the, the main witness until the actual trial, you know, our client could always be skeptical of our advice and say, well, look, you, you know, this, you don't even know this person. They, they, they have no case. They have no case against me. They have no witnesses. And without having that preliminary hearing to assess that, sometimes we have to concede. Or, well, you know, well, you're right. I don't, I don't know what, they're going to say, and we're guessing at that point. Yeah. So what McClellan has actually done is it, it's retroactive. Uh, it's not retroactive to cases that have been already decided. However, I'll give you from my practitioner's standpoint, I have two or three cases in the pipeline now that we've already had a preliminary hearing. And in two of those, actually in all three of those, the Commonwealth at the preliminary hearing had put on the police officer, and the police officer testified as we just described. Joe Jones told me this. The, the law at the time, at least under Richter, Ricker, was that the, the DJ said, okay, that's enough. The police officer testified to what he had heard, so boom, it comes up. Those cases are now pending at the common pleas court level, our trial court level. And I've gone and filed a motion 
in two of those cases so far saying, I'd like to go back and have my preliminary hearing now where the, the complainant has to testify. And one of those, the DA's office agreed with me. The other one is pending in front of a common police court judge. So I hope at the end of the day, both of those are sent back down to the preliminary hearing level where the person who is complaining of this thing uh, actually has to testify. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that, yeah, I think that that's going to, that's going to tell us a lot. So I'm, 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 I'm eager to see, you know, what happens with your two, with your two cases. Agreed. Agreed. Well, I will certainly tell you what happens with them because that's what partners do, right, Steve? Absolutely. <laughs> well, as as we always do, we ran out of time without covering a huge chunk. Maybe we should figure out a way to to move a little bit faster with this thing, but it gives us something to talk about next time. Um, and one of the big things so that our listening audience is on, on pins and needles, we're going to talk about the change in the ARD laws, which is uh, for most most likely a first offense DUI, but there's a lot of other things that go on ARD as well. Steve, we'll save that conversation for another time, right? Sounds good. Okay. Until that time, everybody stay safe out there. I got to make our disclaimer that these are Steve and I's opinions. They aren't made for legal advice. They're purely for entertainment purposes, uh, and you can't. Uh, the they, they don't represent the opinions of our partners or the other attorneys at Lamb Macerlane either. And with that said, la ladies and gentlemen, Steve, everybody, enjoy your afternoon or whenever you might be listening to this, and we'll talk to you next time.